Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Albert Schweitzer once said, One who gains strength by overcoming obstacles possesses the only strength which can overcome adversity. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And sitting in for Jonathan today is Julie. Hello, Julie. Hello, Rick. How are you? And this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue, all in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, Talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all of our social media channels. Make sure to continue your Bible study after today's episode with our comprehensive Seeker Rewind show notes, where we visually and contextually map out this episode's content, always available on our website and our Insider Weekly Newsletter. Plus, make sure to check out our YouTube channel for new videos every week featuring the CQ Kids series, our Moments That Matters series, CQ Bible 101, and much, much more at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Julie, you are back here again for Jonathan. Yes, yes, and we've got a great topic today, which is a little unusual, and it's what can we learn from Jesus's final prayers? And this is taken from our theme scripture, which is John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So again, what can we learn from Jesus' final prayers? You know, you can learn a lot about someone if you know how they pray and what they pray for, especially when they're in the midst of crisis. When we're in a trauma, do we suddenly reach out to God with greater fervor and feelings of faith than we normally would? Do we focus just on ourselves and our need for help and put all else aside? Jesus, on the last night and day of his human life, offered three distinct prayers to his Father as his human life was in its final traumatic chapter. So, folks, coming up in today's podcast, we all love the fact that Jesus is our highest inspiration and example. The question is, do we look at the details of how he did things and what he thought to help us in our own experiences? In our first two segments, we're going to dissect Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture, which is John 17. In that prayer, we're going to find a powerful recipe for how to prepare ourselves for troubling times. Segment three brings us his prayer in Gethsemane. Looking into the agony that Jesus experienced Uh, and prayed about is a profound way to draw inspiration and strength for our own prayers to help us deal with anything that might come our way. Did you ever think of the value of not praying? (laughs) It's an interesting question. Segment four brings us a most significant prayer that Jesus did not offer. And this ends up being a profound lesson, and I am told by somebody named Julie that's her favorite part of this whole podcast. (laughs) And finally, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer on the cross in our final segment, and what we see there will solidify his legacy of sonship, loyalty, and sacrifice. And Rick, we all know the end of this story brings unequivocal victory over sin and death, 
But by examining these three prayers, we can also better know the heart, mind, devotion, and strength that led to achieving such a victory. So this is a big deal. Uh, this is our podcast for the, the resurrection, the Sunday of yesterday. And to set the context, last week we talked about the Last Supper and the events that surrounded it. We ended with Jesus and his disciples walking from the upper room toward the Garden of Gethsemane. It was on this particular walk that Jesus encouraged them with the lessons of John, chapter 14, 15, and 16. So we're going to drop back in on their journey with John chapter 17, which is the first and most detailed of Jesus' final prayers. Hey, you know, before we get started, as I was studying for this topic, this is kind of an unusual way that you are telling the Easter program. How did you come up with these three final prayers as the concept? Well, the beauty is I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) The beauty is Becca, a CQ contributor, came up with the idea. As a matter of fact, the last two programs, this program and then last week, last program, uh, last week about the Last Supper and the events there, Lori, another CQ contributor, uh, came up with that suggestion. And what it did is it took take subjects that we talk about every single year, and it says, you never talked about it from this angle. What about this? And that's why this ends up being such a different approach. But as you and I were talking before we got started here tonight, there are so many amazing lessons in these prayers. You just need an entire podcast to focus on them. So we are really actually very grateful to those who help us out with all of these things. And our listeners can also go ahead and make any suggestions of topics that they want to hear at ChristianQuestions.com because you've done, you know, Jonathan, have done a lot of programs that were listener driven and we'd, we'd love to get those. Yeah, and we still do get suggestions and you absolutely keep it up. And if there's something that's really on your mind, absolutely let us know. So, Julie, let's get started. We've got three prayers we want to go through. Jesus' first prayer, how are we going to look at it for the sake of this podcast? Well, this first prayer, we're going to call a prayer of preparation. And this is a prayer that he is speaking out loud in front of his disciples, and they're listening to this prayer, and so are we. Okay, so he begins this prayer, and this is John 17, with praise and an incredible faith in God's providence. So we're going to go through most of the verses of John 17. Uh, Let's just start with verse 1 right now. Okay, and this was our theme text. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Okay, it's a simple statement. This vision of glory comes just before he's to be tortured and killed. He says, okay, and and, you know, it's it's, it's an amazing thing, because he's talking about the hour has come. Glorify your Son. But the next events in his life are going to be utter misery. bad. Yeah. (laughs) But he sees through them to what comes from them. And I think that that's just an amazing hint. That's how he starts his prayer. You know, I was thinking, how would giving Jesus this heavenly reward of immortality glorify the Father? And, you know, this really shows the unlimited power of God to not only raise a human being from the dead, but to change their very nature to a divine being like himself. And this had never happened before. Remember, God created angels And Jesus in his pre-human existence is what the Bible called the morning star. But never before was immortality granted, meaning life not dependent on an outside source. So by his death and raising into this unbelievable position in the universe, that absolutely showed God's glory. 
And it really, as we will unfold, it was God's glory that was the most important thing to Jesus at this moment and at every single moment of his existence. So Jesus next acknowledges his own God-given position and authority in this prayer. And again, as you mentioned, Julie, the disciples are listening. So let's go verses 2 through 4. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So Jesus is here giving an account of his faithful stewardship to God's plans and purposes. You know, and it's kind of an interesting thing. He's, in this prayer, going over what God had handed him, and how he had responded to what God had handed him. And again, I think it's a really wonderful way to put God first, because before he asks for anything at all, he's saying, it's about your glory, and by the way, all the things you gave me to do, I've done, and here's how I've done them. And you know what's interesting is this verse 3, when he said, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, this is the only time Jesus in the entire Bible refers to himself as Jesus Christ, which means Jesus as the Messiah. So he's acknowledging, this is what I came to do. I am that Messiah. I fulfilled it. And he said, and his next words are, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished what you sent, sent me to do. So it is about the magnitude of, of God and his plan. So it's only after Jesus gives glory to God and accounts for his actions, now he begins to petition. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay, so all he asks for himself is to be reunited with his Father as they once were. And he, and again, it's about glory but it's God's glory, and he's asking just, bring me back to what I had. You know, and that's a humble but very straightforward request on Jesus' part. And, you know, what we'll do is there's a lot of scriptures we're going to talk about today, and every one of them will be available in the CQ Rewind show notes that's available on our website, ChristianQuestions.com, the CQ app, or through our free weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that newsletter at our website. But some, just a few citations I'll list here about Jesus's pre-human existence that he was talking about. Colossians 1, 13 through 16 talks about, by him, all things were created in heaven and earth. All things were created through him and for him. Um, and then Proverbs eight twenty two, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. So the first direct creation of God was Jesus. Um, and also verse 30 says of Proverbs 8, there I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So he had such this powerful, powerful relationship with God before he was sent to earth that that really plays into this whole, as we're going to unfold, the pain that he felt and the sorrow and the suffering of being separated from God. And you can see why he's saying, just restore me back to that, because it was that was the, 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 the very core of his existence. So he begins with that petition, and now he goes further, and he brings his prayer down to earth, so to speak, and begins to focus 
not on himself, but his followers. His love for them and his protective instincts for them begin to be revealed in this prayer as he pours his heart out to his father. Let's go to verses 6 through 9. We're going to skip a little bit, but 6 through 9. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, so Jesus is now humbly accounting for his stewardship over those who followed him, and because they're called by God and therefore belong to God. And he's saying, you gave them to me, and I have taken care of them. And now I'm asking on their behalf because I'm not going to be here anymore to be their shepherd. Yeah, and he has the disciples' well-being in his heart and mind, even though he's the one that's about to die yeah. in a cruel way. You know, he's worried about the others. Um, you know, it's interesting about these these first two steps of preparation where, you know, you're approaching the Lord in, in a very careful way, in a very reverent way. I think when, when we're faced with something where we're very emotional and it's a very traumatic experience or it's very sorrowful, the first thing we need to do is take that emotion out of it and get ourselves in the right attitude. And if we can get rid of our anger and calm our minds down, and we almost need to treat prayer like a safe space, as, yeah. they, say, as they say these days, where it's, it's a place that we can come in complete reverence because we are going before the creator of the universe with all power. And I, I think this is what Jesus was doing. He was preparing himself for this type of reverent prayer. And and again, what we want to focus is on is how did he get himself into the mode for making this prayer as effective as it possibly could be? So as we look at this prayer of preparation, Julie, how, how can we sum it up for this segment? Well, to prepare for any trying experience, let us always, as Jesus did, first give praise, be accountable to our position of grace, and then petition in accordance with these things. Okay, so we first give praise. Secondly, always be accountable for your position within God's grace, and then get around to saying, and this is, this is what's on my heart and mind. But if we don't have praise and, and accountability on our heart and mind first, then we've got a question, what am I asking? Why am I asking? So it, Jesus sets a tremendous, tremendous example here. So, folks, you know, as we, as we keep, move forward, it's amazing to look at all of the details that Jesus put in place to show us how prayer should be done. Jesus' attitude of prayer makes us stop and think, would we be as clear-minded when faced with our most difficult experiences? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Jesus' prayer perspective here is truly a remarkable model. It's Jesus who's going to be taken, beaten, accused, tried, derided, insulted, and crucified, and yet his heart, his focus, his mind are all set firmly on those whom he loved. He would not, he could not leave them without tenderly and carefully handing them over to the Father, the great protector of all who seek his will. 
So, Julie, as we move forward in this first prayer, John chapter 17, we're going to take the rest of this segment to cover the rest of the prayer. We want to pause just for a moment. And in in the preparation stage, I, I, I had asked very specifically if someone could supply an example of an individual who went above and beyond in a very, very unique way. And one of our contributors sent me a story that I had never, ever heard. And when I heard the story, it just it just blew me away. Um, it's about a uh, a Polish uh, general in an army. His name, his first name, how do you say his first name? Witold. 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 Witold Pilecki. He's an unsung hero of World War II, and his his history was actually only revealed in 1989. The amazing things that he did, and he shows and unrelenting love for his fellow human. So we're going to be touching in on little little parts of his story because it's so inspiring and helps us to focus on we as imperfect people moving toward trying to do and act uh, in Jesus' footsteps. So let's just get a little bit of introduction here. Again, this is the unsung hero of World War II the un- from Unknown History, and this is from Bitmap Axis. He was one of the biggest heroes of World War II. He was the man who volunteered to get captured and sent to Auschwitz, where he spent over two years in the concentration camp, gathering information and organizing resistance. He was the man who informed the Allies of Nazi atrocities and German plans to exterminate the Jews. He was a captain of the Polish army, and his name was Witold Pilecki. You know, Julia, the thing that, that jumps out at me from that introduction is he volunteered to be captured and be a prisoner at Auschwitz. It's an unbelievable story. I've, I've been to Auschwitz, and it is not a place you wanted to go, especially voluntarily. It's everything you would, you've heard of. It's just horrific. And the man went there so he could find out exactly what was happening and let the world know. It's, it, it is, you know, in the volunteering, it reminds me of Jesus, here am I, send me. That same, that attitude of giving. So let's get back to Jesus' first prayer of these last three prayers of his uh, earthly life. He continues to this prayer of preparation, which now develops, actually, into, from a prayer of preparation, it, it evolves, it develops into a prayer for protection. Verse 11 of John 17. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So he's saying, okay, I'm leaving, they're staying, they're vulnerable, and he's telling God. Now, God already knows this. But remember, you mentioned earlier, Jesus is praying this prayer before his disciples. They're, they're, they're hearing the words. And he's saying it to them so they understand that he knows what their plight will be. So he continues to petition for their protection and blessing by laying their vulnerability of being in the world without him, and he lays it clearly before before the grace of God. You know, but can we lay some groundwork about the unity that's being described here? Because I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, but... God and Jesus have this same spirit of unity. Mm-hmm. So this means Jesus is aligning himself perfectly under the will of God. And he's asking his followers to also be one in this line of unity. So it's like a hierarchy. It's not separate wills. It's the one will of the Father and all the faithful of the creation line up under it. And that's harmony. Yeah, and- see, see the, the, the difference 
from what we normally look at unity. We normally look at unity as we all get together and we work and we kind of figure it out and we kind of say, okay, this is what we're going to do. But what you're saying is this is way deeper than that because this is unity that is strictly under the will of God through the auspices of the office of Jesus Christ himself. So our unity is bound by those higher guidelines, not by just what we decide are good things to be unified on. It's a top-down unity. We're not all holding hands in a circle. Right, exactly. It goes the other direction. Right. And so he prays that they may be kept in this knowledge in order that they may know the Father through him as to become themselves one with the Father when he's gone. You know, that's how they were able to see the reflection of the Father was through the Son. And so now when the Son's gone, they will have seen enough of the reflection to know the Father. And Jesus is saying, I want them to have what we have. It's such a beautiful, beautiful, powerful prayer that is so deeply concerned and compassionate. Jesus next accounts for the care with which he fulfilled his stewardship of his beloved disciples. So again, he's going into an accountability. He's asking for something, and he's saying, here's what I have done in accordance with your will, Father. And this is, again, John chapter 17, verses 12 to 14. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I have given them your word, word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So Jesus is making a case for God to provide for them. Now, again, does God need a case to be made? No, but he's doing it so they can hear, so he can say it, so it is put before God in an official manner, so to speak. The only loss suffered was the son of perdition. And so, you know, and this is interesting. He says, I lost one, the son of perdition, but that was prophesied. Okay, I couldn't control that. But the, but the implication was that the apostle Peter, who was going to betray him, would not mm-hmm. be lost because he said there was only one lost. And, that, and, you know, again, if Peter had kept these words in his mind, it could have been a real solace for him after such a huge mistake. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it says, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And that's worldly. A few weeks ago, you and Jonathan did podcast number 1068, Do I Have a Sound Christian Mind? I really enjoyed that podcast, 1068. And it referenced the theme scripture of 2 Timothy 1.7 about the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind. But here we have a hint of a worldly spirit. And I know we're supposed to be more like ambassadors than citizens in this world, but What's a practical example of having the spirit of the world being of the world that Jesus is praying so hard to protect his followers against? You know, the spirit of the world will come up when Peter wants to fight for Jesus. He draws a sword to protect Jesus. That's the spirit of the world. Jesus didn't need protection. He didn't need any earthly individual to lift a finger for his protection because God would protect him. So it crept in. Peter was doing what he thought was the right thing. But from an earthly perspective, the spirit of the world is when we put our fleshly thinking and logic and rationality and reason before the providence of God. And so it can be subtle or it can be very, 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 uh, very dramatic. And, you know, we always look at the dramatic things like, you know, well, you know, the apostles went out and gambled all night. (laughs) Sure, that's the spirit of the world. But the spirit of the world is also fleeing. It's also running away when you don't have to be afraid. So there's a lot of things we need to be aware of. And Jesus is saying that 
they need to be drawn in. And he moves forward. Uh, Jesus knows, in, f- following through in the next few verses of the prayer, he knows they're going to be safe in God's hands. But he's reluctant to let them go. This shows you real, genuine attachment. You're turning these men over to God, for goodness sake. Of course you can let them go. But when you hear the prayer, he's like, but one more thing, but one more thing, but one more thing, because he loves them so much. He is so attached. Verses 15 to 17. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So Jesus now petitions that his followers be sanctified by God's word, even as Jesus himself was set apart to do God's will. You know, it's interesting that he never prays for any kind of greatness or riches or power. His prayer is quite simple. It's just that they be, well, it's not really simple, but they be (laughs) kept from sin and the corruption of the world and given strength. And, you know, I found this neat commentary by Matthew Henry on, on these texts. And he said, they might pass through the world as through an enemy's country as he had done. So the spirit of God in true Christians is opposed to the spirit of the world. And that's that's like what we are. We are kind of passing through enemy lines. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of ick that can get onto us and that can attach itself to us. But if we stay focused on biblical principles and on doing God's will, we, that shouldn't affect us. It shouldn't, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't change us. It shouldn't make us deny him. Okay, so you heard it here first. Julie says, avoid the ick. Avoid the ick. Yes, <laughs> not the rick, just the ick. And, and you know, this <laughs> definition of sanctify, he said, sanctify them in truth. That's setting aside for a holy purpose. And if we go through our daily activities with the mindset that we are set apart for a holy purpose, and that purpose is to give glory to God in all we do, I think we're going to act and talk and think differently as we're presented with different challenges. So to the extent we have a worldly spirit, we're going to act worldly. And that's not what glorifies God. Right, right. Okay, so now Jesus includes every Christian through the age of the gospel who would follow him. So he's not just interested and worried about those who were with him right there. He is now focusing on every Christian that would follow him down through the age through the next 2,000 years, and that does include us. John 17, verses 19 through 21. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Hey, Rick, that's us. That is. Jesus includes us in this prayer. That they may be all one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, so now he's drawing everybody else in with them. Okay, now based on their sanctification by God, Okay, that's being set apart. Jesus now petitions for his followers to participate in this incredible oneness that you had talked about and we described earlier. And Julie, just a quick note, in in several weeks we're going to be doing an entire podcast on Christian unity, sometime beginning of June, I think. So, because it's such an important subject, and the point of it all is to be unified under the headship of Jesus, who is under the will of God. Those are the guidelines for our unity. What does that mean? So now as we move forward here, let's think about this. We're in, we, 
you and I and anybody who claims the name of Christ and is walking in Jesus' footsteps. We are included in that last undisturbed prayer that Jesus was able to pray before the great ordeal of his life is to begin. These were precious moments of preparation for him, and he saw fit to use them to lay our lives into the hands of God along with the lives of his disciples. He thought about us when he was the one who was going to be suffering. It's, it is. It's an amazing thing. John 17, verses 22 through 24. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, now Jesus ends his prayer where he started. Glory. Glory to God for his character and his plan. And, and, and Julie, for me, when I look at this, it's the glorying to God that is just most impressive to me. It's all for the glory of God. And Jesus tells us again and again and again, and he showed us again and again and again, not only here but everywhere else in his life. Glorify God first and foremost. So summing up this prayer for preparation and protection. As we prepare and seek protection for ourselves and others, let us be aware of the pitfalls, cling to God's sanctifying word, and always glorify our Father. So that's the key. We need to, um, as we prepare, again, to, to, to look for the protection, we have to be aware of the difficulties. Hang on to the sanctifying word of God, the, the word, the scriptures, and always, always, always give glory to God. Nothing is more important than beginning that way. If we begin that way, then we can put things in perspective. And Julie, whenever we do that, we stop and think for a moment. And when we stop and think, what we come up with at the end is something different. Because if we think higher, what's lower that's bothering us has an opportunity to come up a bit higher. Nothing instills more confidence in having your Lord and Savior display such unadulterated care for you. This was truly a deep, connected, and selfless prayer. What changed between this prayer and Jesus' next one? We have a simple yet powerful request for you. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy listening to this podcast? Send them a text message right now. Tell them to check out our Christian Questions podcast. That's one of the great ways to spread the word. Thank you for sharing our weekly conversation with every single person you know. Well, who you want to tell is still up to you. Thanks for texting and listening. Let's go back to Rick and Jonathan as we take a closer look at our topic. The John 17 prayer would be the last truly peaceful moments of Jesus' human life as the road to our salvation would now require him to suffer without mercy. Perhaps this prayer was his last deep breath of goodness, grace, and fellowship before leaping from the cliffs into the turbulent waters of sacrifice. You've got to think that there was so much at stake, and yet his last quiet moments were praying with his disciples before him, for them, just before the most difficult things of his life were about to begin. Uh, Julie, before we get back into the story, Julie, folks, is sitting in for Jonathan today. He could not be with us. Uh, Julie is a CQ contributor, a frequent guest host when Jonathan is not available, also works with me on Facebook Live, and works on uh, CQ Rewind and about a million other things. So <laughs> we appreciate your, uh, your efforts for us, Julie, here. 
Um, let's go back to uh, uh, Witold Pilecki, the unsung hero of World War II, and get a little bit more about his life and what happened that put him into the position that he was in. By the 1940s, Auschwitz was believed to be a POW camp or large prison, and no one knew what the Germans were planning to do there. Pilecki created a plan to enter the concentration camp in Auschwitz gather intelligence, and organize resistance. Once inside, he was assigned prisoner number 4859 and immediately started to organize the resistance network, which by March of 1942 consisted of about 500 prisoners. Bielecki started to write reports by hand. They were smuggled to London to the Polish government in exile. You think about the conditions in Auschwitz. Where did the guy find time to recruit these 500 individuals to resistance, to write these handwritten reports, and find a way to smuggle them out? Mm -hmm. It just gives you a sense of this utter focus to protect the lives of the innocent. And really, that's what we're looking at with Jesus, the utter focus to protect and to win over all of the lives of every human being who ever lived. Quick quote from William James before we get back to the story. Acceptance of what has happened is the first step to overcoming the consequences of any misfortune. So you can't change what's already happened. You can't change the things that have gone before. So that is really an important aspect in being able to move forward. And what we're going to see in this segment is Jesus' acceptance of what had already happened, because Judas is on his way to betray him. Jesus is going to accept that and be able to move forward with it. So here's the thing. As we, as we look at this whole circumstance, when facing extreme stress in our lives, as Jesus was then, we all have favorite places or circumstances that we seek to help us find strength and peace. And the Garden of Gethsemane was such a place for Jesus as it offered an ancient beauty and rustic presence in which to deeply communicate with his heavenly father. And he frequently had brought his disciples there before. And this was a place where he could refocus. And Julie, just in your own experience, when you are absolutely deeply stressed, do you have a a place or a a thought pattern or something that you go to? Like my happy place? Yes, your happy place. place? What's your happy place? um, You know, my, my happy place is my husband's arms. You know, if he sees that I'm stressed or I'm, you know, having a bad day or a circumstance or situation, he can see it in my face, in my body language, and he'll just kind of hold out his arms like hug. <laughs> and then, you know, and that that really makes it better. And if you, you don't have a husband or a Doug or a wife or whatever, you know, there's still someone that you can seek solace and that, that you know will be steady and true and tell you the way it is, but help you out of it. So, you know, for you, it, it's, it's your husband, but if, if someone is not in that situation, there's the fellowship, the deep fellowship, prayer, sometimes music can help. We need to find those places that we can go in our own minds to help us reset so we can find our feet again and stand up and move forward. For Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane was one such place. So he went there. And interestingly, Judas would have known that he was going there. Mm-hmm. So now we read in John 18, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, and those were the words of the previous prayer we just went over in John 17, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, 
in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas knows this place. Jesus is heading there because that's where he goes. This beautiful garden was always a place of peace and fellowship for Jesus. And now it would become a place of peril and betrayal. And this brings us to the second of Jesus' three final prayers, Julian. What, what is this prayer? Well, this is going to be a prayer of pleading. Okay, a prayer of pleading. And this is his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, imminent betrayal and the weight of the world pressed Jesus to seek two things. He sought support and he sought prayer. And this is what we see unfold now in the garden. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 42. We'll take it in a few pieces. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So this is an interesting setup for this prayer. Jesus' spiritual instincts had led him to pray for the physical strength and the spiritual courage necessary to overcome. And pray he did over and over. And he asked three of his disciples to come and be with him. So, Julie, you've got an interesting setup because this is not like the previous prayer was he's praying out loud in front of everybody. This is going to be more of a private prayer, but yet he's bringing three of his disciples with him. Yeah, this is Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. And, you know, it's interesting. These are the same three that were with him at the raising of Jairus's daughter back in Mark 5, 37. And they were also at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Do we know why these three are given such high honor? You know, it's it's interesting. With Peter, I think there there's some more, more of an obvious answer because Peter was that was was to be the spokesperson for the all of the apostles and he was that that bold one who had that impetuousness that got him into trouble but that Jesus would take and develop that impetuousness into spiritual courage and you know it needed to be grown in and and developed and you know James and John were were also obviously very very faithful and, and you know they they perhaps showed an extra level of faithfulness, an extra level of devotion, maybe extra care in a lot of things. And Jesus, they were kind of his inner circle of the inner circle. Um, so I don't have a really clear answer, but it's just he's these are the ones that he feels he can most depend upon. And I think that's what we need to focus on. So um, he feels that he can depend on them, on them, but they end up being weak. So let's take a look at that. Uh, We're in Matthew 26 now, uh, verses 39 to 42. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Okay, so Julie, what's happening here? He brings these three further, and he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to be just over there praying. Please watch with me. 
and he goes and he prays very deeply and very earnestly, and we'll get into that in a minute. But let's just talk about the, the apostles for a moment. And what happens to them? They fall asleep. So the one, you're only given one thing to do, <laughs> just one thing, and so, they fell asleep. So, so when, you, when you see that, and you see the weakness, and you see, you know, obviously, you know, they, they, they want to be there for their Lord. I mean, what, what happens? What kind of lessons can, can, you know, when you look at this, what comes to your mind in their falling asleep and Jesus needing them, and, and there's this discrepancy, and then we'll get into this, uh, introduce the idea of what, what this cup is that we're talking about. So, you know, it's interesting that I, I see a progression here. He prays asking for this cup of experience to pass from him, mm-hmm. and then he sees how weak his three friends are, even though these are the most dedicated and loyal humans on the planet at this point. I think it's at this point he realizes that he can never truly help them and those like them until he takes that next step. And I feel like he's had like this paradigm shift in his thinking once he sees them failing at this smallest task, and then he's ready to go back to the Lord and say, okay, if this can't pass away until I drink it, your will be done. And we had some excerpts from uh, one of our contributors, Karina, that I I wanted to read, and we'll put the full thing in this this week's CQ Rewind show notes. Karina said this, It's significant that Jesus told the disciples to watch and pray so that they would not fall into temptation. They slept instead. Jesus did watch and pray, and he got that help and grace in time of extreme need. He knew God's will was to be trusted above his own as the flesh is weak. Perhaps if Peter would have watched and prayed, he wouldn't have fell into the temptation of denying Jesus. Jesus understood just how much watching and praying was necessary for the apostles like himself, and he knew Rick, that that connection needed to be maintained continually in order to succeed. And that's where the watch and pray comes in for us. If we can keep that continual line open, that's why we're not going to fall into this worldly spirit that's that's around us. You know, and, and I think that's a really powerful, powerful point, the idea of continually keeping that line open. And it's interesting to me, you know, you say that the apostles all needed to, to know and learn this lesson, and, and the three most worthy fell down on the job. Now, look, there's forgiveness, and, and, and we want to learn from the mistakes of others so we don't make those same mistakes. But think about the Apostle Paul. You know, when you said this was kind of like a, a, a step-by-step process for Jesus, the Apostle Paul, when he had the thorn in the flesh, he brought it to the Lord three times. Jesus prayed in the garden three times. And the Apostle Paul said, if you can remove this, this thorn from me, then I can serve you better. Jesus answers him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Modeled after Jesus asking, can this cup be removed from me if it's oh, your will? And, and that's God, what he learned. No, the glory is going to be in going through this experience. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's the one apostle who wasn't there for that original experience was given an experience similarly for his very own, the Apostle Paul. So, you know, you see the, all of this, all of the pieces moving into place, but again, Jesus is caring for them. So he prayed, let this cup pass from me, and then he comes back and they're sleeping. So it goes and he, and he um, prays the second time. You, you read, and he says, my father, if this cannot pass away, unless I drink it, your will be done. So he adds that next dimension Mm-hmm. Okay. That next level of acceptance. Right, right. Each time Jesus prayed, like you said, 
he became more focused, for his mission demanded submission to God's way, even in areas that went entirely against his very being. And the end result of this struggle was simply, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So let's finish up the garden prayer, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this cup and so forth. Uh, We're in uh, Matthew 26, verses 43 to 46. Again, he came and found them sleeping. Again, (laughs) let me just read that again. (laughs) Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Poor, poor apostles. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And that's probably the same words as that second prayer. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So this this prayer led directly to betrayal. There was no time in between. So this was the end. This was it. And Jesus could had this sense, I think, that here it is. It's coming. It's on its way as I speak to you. But it says he prayed the third time saying the same words. And so you see Jesus, very, he's very focused on this particular prayer. Thoughts. And, Go ahead. And that was my prayer. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. I think he was shoring himself up. Yeah. You know, and he's getting ready. And then, boom, that clock strikes. We got to be gone. There's no more time to do the preparations. That's why I think he was a little exasperated with them sleeping yet again. Yeah. Yeah. Because the time is short. But, you know, I, I had a question. So, yeah. you know, how he's saying, let this cup pass from me. Yes. And he keeps talking about drinking it. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible talks about a lot of different cups. There's a cups of blessing, a cup of indignation, a cup of sacrifice. What cup is this? And, and, and how do we know? OK, this is a hard question to answer. I, I, I think I have in my mind an answer that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, but there are certainly other opinions on the matter. For me, I think that this cup was the idea of being reckoned a, uh, a blasphemer, a, uh, an individual who was against God. And the reason I think that is, first of all, just by Jesus' whole attitude in everything he did before this, everything was to the glory of God, to the glory of God, to the glory of God. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. We've, we've discovered that very, very plainly. In Isaiah 53, it's in verse 3, part of verse 3 says, A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Then it says, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Barnes, Albert Barnes says, uh, we, um, Yet we thought him judicially stricken. We esteemed him stricken from above. We thought him to be a leper. These are some of the trans- translations and, and, and interpretations of this. In other words, he was cursed of God. God Almighty had cursed this man. Jesus knew this verse and knew that this was part of the problem that he was going to face. Isaiah 53, verse 4, just part of verse 4. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Smitten of God. So he is being punished by God because he stood against God. And I think that that was part of the experience that was going to be so difficult for him to be looked upon by those people who would walk by and rail on him and spit at him and say, yeah, you talked about, uh, you talked about serving God. Look at you now. You, 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 you criminal. You absolute criminal. And you, 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 so to me, the cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. That 
the ignominy of that was far more than he, I think, he didn't want to have to go through that portion because God was everything to him. I'm sorry, go ahead. He could take everything except he was asking, can you just not make me be an and people say I'm an enemy of God yeah. because that would have and that goes back to what we were talking about in his beginning his existence they were so close yes. so tight and to to go against that would be heartbreaking and every single thing he had done for the eons of his existence were to glorify God mm. every single thing and he was recognized in the heavens as the great glorifier of God so you know we see all this and it's like so it was just what and look Whatever it was, it was something that he was saying, this is, this is my personal human preference, but let your will override whatever I feel. And that's the key. He's saying, let your will override whatever I feel. Jesus, we don't think, wanted to be labeled as such by, of his father. And all of his life had been about the exact opposite, glorifying him. In the end, he resolved, nevertheless, your will, not my human thinking, or preference, just like the Apostle Paul, but your will be done. This prayer of pleading, Julie, what, how do we wrap that up? When faced with dire experiences, we want to do as Jesus did. Lay our heart out before God, petition mightily, and in the end, accept and embrace what God would have us do. And, you know, we want to trust that he's going to give us what we need to go through it, just like he gave Jesus this this boost of, of, of courage and energy. And perhaps that first prayer that he made was to accept it. He accepted it. And the second one, he began to embrace it. And then in the third, I think he trusted it. He trusted in God's providence that he could now do anything because it was God approved and God glorying. And, and, and I think that that's a very powerful process, accept, embrace, and trust. And that is what our Lord showed us in the Garden of Gethsemane. The earnestness with which Jesus prayed is almost heartbreaking, yet the end result was strength to follow through. After such a prayer of pleading, how do we know that Jesus was entirely ready to accept all of what God would allow? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. The Scriptures do show us in subtle ways just how thoroughly Jesus was set to endure the torture, crucifixion, and blasphemy that was about to unfold. As we discuss his final three prayers, we want to now focus on the prayer that he did not pray. This prayer, which is just as significant regarding his character and resolve. So there was a prayer that he did not pray. We're going to get to that in a moment, but first let's do a uh, little bit of a wrap-up and a quick telling of the story of Witold Pilecki, this unsung hero from World War II, who was a Polish general in the army who set himself up to be captured, become a prisoner in Auschwitz, so we could find out what was going on and alert the world to the atrocities. He fought in the Warsaw Uprising in 44. After its defeat, he surrendered to Germans and was taken to Marnau in Germany, where he was liberated from a POW camp by the U.S. Army in April 1945. He was ordered by General Anders, the commander of 2nd Polish Corps, to return to now Soviet-controlled Poland and 
gather intelligence for the Polish government in exile. Pilecki was arrested by the communists on May 5, 1947. He was tortured, having his ribs and nose broken and fingernails ripped out. He was accused of activities against states and put on trial with others. He was sentenced to death by the puppet court and executed in May 1948. So you think about that. The end of his life came very, very soon after because Poland uh, ended up communist after World War II, and they didn't like this, this freedom fighter. And so they, uh, they shot him in the back of the head and uh, put an end to his life and closed the book on everything he did. It was not opened again until 1989 after communism was overthrown in Poland, and nobody knew his story until all of those years later. And one of the things we skipped over was that he actually escaped from Auschwitz. Yes. And he escaped, and, and um, they, they developed this secret radio station even within the camp. Yep. And he organized all that, and so he was able to give um, hope and, and um, information, which was so important, to the prisoners. And at the, after the announcement of his death sentence, he said these words, I've been trying to live my life so that in the hour of my death, I would feel... I would rather feel joy than fear. And I think that's exactly what Jesus did in the hour of his death. He was able to feel joy and not fear. And boy, this makes me think of how are we living? You know, how are we to prove our worth? Because we're not going to hopefully have the opportunity to, you know, sneak into a concentration camp and set up a radio station for the prisoners and then sneak back out. What can we do in our everyday life to be worthy of the sufferings of Jesus? Oh, you're right, and and it's a, it's a sobering example of a real life individual who wasn't perfect like Jesus, who really saw the freedom and liberty of those people being so incredibly abused and and, and destroyed daily as his mission in life. And uh, he was a young man and with a with a family, and he gave it all up because the the lives of those people were more important. Great example, and it hopefully helps to inspire us to stand more firmly on the ground that Jesus gave us to stand upon. So let's continue by talking about the power of prayer and providence. Jesus, uh, Judas, I'm sorry, has shown up. So this crowd with torches and swords and armor approaches. It was led by an unarmed man, an unarmed and familiar man. We're going to be reading from Matthew 26 and Luke 22. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come for. Judas, is it with a kiss that you're betraying the Son of Man? So Jesus is accepting what's happening, but he's putting it on the, he's, he's putting the truth out there very, very plainly, very calmly. Do what you've come to do. Are you actually betraying me with a kiss? Is really, you're showing friendship? And in so, you're actually betraying me? Jesus didn't flinch. He acquiesced because he knew that this was the pathway that he had to follow to do the will of God. So next, Jesus focuses on those he spent so much time praying for and teaching. And again, you know, it's, it's interesting that Jesus is the one about to be taken captive, and, and it's all going to fall apart from here. Listen to what he does 
in these next few verses, and we will be getting to this prayer that he doesn't doesn't pray very shortly. John 18, we're going to be going through verses 3 to 11 in several pieces. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons, and he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. So the first thing, the first thing that Jesus does is says, I'm the guy, let them go. I don't want harm to come to any of my closest friends. Take me. You came for me, fine. It's okay. I'm willing to go with you. Just He, he just wants to protect them. And, you know, when you think about it, Julie, this, this, this is what betrayal looks like. When you think of Jesus Christ, this, this, this incredible example of godliness, you've got lanterns and torches and weapons and a contingent of chief priests and Pharisees all, you know, in, in their high and mighty stance, all mm-hmm. to apprehend a man who never even used a sword or a spear and whose life was spent healing, teaching, and encouraging anyone he ever came in contact with. It's so contrary to what Jesus was, how he was about to be handled. So Peter now decides to leap into action. And you know, you have to appreciate Peter's willingness. He told Jesus, in in our last podcast, we were talking about the events after the Last Supper, and on the road to, um, as they were going to um, the Mount of Olives, Jesus was teaching them. Jesus, Peter, Peter three times told Jesus that he would not betray him. He would not, not leave him. He would be willing to die with him. That was what was in Peter's heart and mind. And Peter now steps up to prove that this is what was in his heart and mind. Let's get back to John chapter 18. Uh, 18 and verse 10 verse and 10. 11. Yes. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Am, am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So this is interesting. Jesus' response here is threefold. First, he stops the violence and proclaims his, fa- his faith in providence. He said, look, no more. God's providence is here. I'm willing to accept it. So his first point, I'm going to stop this violent act. Matthew 26, 53 is the key point. Julie, I can see it in your face. You're like, oh, I can't wait to do this verse. Go ahead. Read the this verse. Is, this is the prayer that never was. Okay. Matthew 26, 53. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once Put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And Rick, 12 legions of angels is 72,000. 72,000 angels. So let me ask you a question. Did you watch any of this year's Super Bowl between the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Rams? Yes. Okay. It was held this last year at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That sports stadium holds just over 66,000 people. And that's about the average of an NFL stadium. Some hold less, some hold a little more. Picture what that football game was like with all those people surrounding that little field. Mm -hmm. Now think of this scene with Jesus and Peter. And if we could flip on our spiritual lights to see what was going on, I imagine 72,000 angelic beings surrounding their friend Jesus 
just waiting for the go order from the Heavenly Father to rescue him. They would have been on red alert, just watching and waiting. The tension would have been unbelievable. Hmm. And just one angel could have flattened those soldiers. And to have the firepower of not one, not 10, not 10,000, but 72,000 of these powers is incredible, just incredible. And I think that the word restraint has to be shown here, Yeah, has to be shown here. He had great restraint and ability to control his emotions for the greater cause. And this is something I think we really, okay, I really need to think about. When I'm driving and somebody cuts me off, I get angry and I want to lash out. And when we're cheated on or lied to or disrespected, we want vengeance. And Jesus had such superior intellect and knowledge and power at his disposal, so much so that it's laughable. And yet he was never vindictive. He always showed restraint and he loved them. You know, and you, you cannot, you cannot state this clearly enough. This is the prayer that Jesus says, I could have asked my father and this would have happened. Yeah, you would have been flattened. Right. I didn't, but I could have. And this is an amazing, this is not one of the three prayers because this is the one that was not offered. But sometimes we may have the opportunity for deliverance that is not God's will. Jesus had the opportunity for deliverance, but he knew it was not God's will. So we could be delivered out of a difficult trial, but maybe the Lord wants us to walk through it, just like the Apostle Paul. No, I want you to experience that thorn in the flesh for the rest of your life, because through your weakness, I'm made strong. Jesus could say that to him because Jesus lived those very words right here. So this prayer, not being prayed, shows not only restraint, but again, coming back to that earlier thought of being under the will of God, entirely immersed in just what God would have me do, even though God would provide me a way out if I asked him. In an instant, in dramatic fashion, I'm not taking it. So first, Jesus stopped the violence. Second, he reveals how easily he could have been defended and even rescued by his father. And this prayer that he didn't offer um, shows us his obedience is greater than our fear. Okay, go ahead. And you know, one more thing, if you notice what this this prayer said, even Jesus couldn't command the angels directly. He would have to ask God to do it. And that's something to think about when you hear about people who pray to angels or want them to do things for them or want to communicate with them. Jesus did not have the direct order. He had to entreat his father to give that order. And that's a little detail that we never would have known, but for this prayer that was not prayed. Right. Right. And, and so he's telling us, he's teaching us an awful lot, not only about the moments, but about how the, 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 the spiritual world works in relation to the physical world. So now the third point of, of, of managing betrayal comes in Luke 22, uh, verse 51, a very, very short verse here. So Jesus is saying, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So third, after Jesus didn't pray that prayer, Jesus heals his enemy, Malchus, just another sinful man for whom he would die. Malchus was one of those people that Jesus was about to die for, and he had the grace and the, and the care and the humility to give that virtue out of him to heal that man so that he could stand up whole and take him away, take Jesus away in, to be a prisoner. It's an amazing thing. It is just an amazing thing. So let's just let's just wrap up this this part of the story. 
Um, so back to Luke twenty-two fifty-two and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who came for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then in Matthew 26, 56, it continues. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. So again, what does Jesus do that he has always done? He finishes that statement by saying, this is fulfilling scripture. And, and his point was, look, you're coming after me like I'm abandoned. Oh, what have I ever done except heal and teach? You've seen, I've just, my whole message is love. Uh, What am I going to do now? Yeah. What have I done? Malchus, tell them what I have done. (laughs) I stopped the violence. I just healed you. (laughs) And I healed you, my enemy. So Jesus essentially verifies to them that it's God's plan that's unfolding. And they have no ability to stop it. And there's great power in that because God takes the deviousness and anger, and jealousy, and vengeance of man, and he can turn it to accomplish his will. And it was through a hard road, but that's what he did here for Jesus. Matthew twenty six fifty six finishes this piece, and it's kind of a sad statement. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Ugh. But he, he knew it would happen. Yeah. He, he knew it would happen. He told them it would happen. He knew that the scriptures pointed to that happening. But even when you know something's going to happen, Julie, and it happens, it's still not an easy thing. It's still sad. It's dark. It's only getting darker. And um, and it's interesting that, you know, this is your hour, the previous verse, this is your hour in the power of darkness. I just can't help but think about how darkness came up when Judas um, left the room, the upper room. It said that, you know, Satan came into him and, you know, he left the room and it was dark mm. or and it was night. That's what it said. And it was night. And now he, it's talking about the power of darkness. It's in the darkness that Satan thrives. So let's wrap up this particular segment, Julie. Go ahead. Well, by not asking for readily available, overwhelming deliverance, Jesus teaches us that the will of God often takes the hard road. But this road leads to grace, strength, overcoming and salvation. It's the hard road, the godly road, the will of God road that is the only one that was acceptable, and especially here with Jesus at this moment. And we have to remember in our own lives, there are some times where we can say, well, this looks like the will of God, or that looks like the will of God, or I can serve God this way or that way. But is it the way that is so scripturally clear, sound, and pure? Is it that way? You know, it's startling how important it is to control our thoughts and petitions. Jesus didn't run away. He ran through. Prayers of preparation and pleading and an unspoken reliance on providence. Where do we find Jesus's final prayer? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 930 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. Undoubtedly, Jesus prayed throughout the whole night of trial, but none of this has been written for us to see. Jesus' final prayer was uttered in his last words before his death. He had hung on the cross for six hours, and the end of his suffering and ignominy had finally come. 
His last words would be from the 22nd Psalm. And so we're going to drop in on Jesus and that 22nd Psalm uh, in, in just a moment. We want to take another left turn here. We, you know, we talked about Vitold Pilecki, you know, for the past few segments and his story of heroism. But we want to take a different look now. We want to look at one of the apostles, a, a very interpretive look through the eyes of our friends, the skit guys. Uh, and, uh, and this is the apostle James the Lesser. So this is just two brief segments from one of their short skits. And uh, this is one of them talking about what it's like to be James the Lesser. My name is James, and I'm one of the disciples, but not the one you're thinking of. I'm, I'm the other one. James the Lesser. That's what the disciples would call me to distinguish between the two of us. Through the years, that's why I started calling myself. That's how I thought of myself. I was the last disciple picked. I was never the top dog. But none of that matters anymore. <sighs> because Jesus was sealed in a tomb. And three days later, he flipped life as we know it on its head. And we'll come back to him in a few minutes. But uh, it just gives you a sense of you know, even in the time of Jesus, you had those who would have been following him, but perhaps very much felt like they were way behind and, 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 and very insignificant. And, and Julie, as we go through this story of Jesus, doesn't it make you feel like thoroughly insignificant when you see Absolutely. the example? You know, it, it, it's just, it's such a huge thing. It's such a, a, a powerful example of fidelity to the will of God. And we're privileged to be able to look in on it and to learn from it. But boy, it really shows how weak we really, really are. So let's fast forward to the cross. Here Jesus is at the very end of his journey, and his mind goes to Psalm 22. We see this whole experience, there's very few words, but we see this experience as a prayer because at the end, he's speaking directly to the Father. You know, he says at the very end, and we'll get to it, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So he says, Father. So we, we're looking at this whole thing as a prayerful uh, example of his, his final prayer. So when we look at this, Julie, what is it? What kind of prayer? Well, we're going to talk about this prayer beginning as a prayer of perseverance. And we you know as we, as we compare this to Psalm 22, I just wanted to make mention that you and Jonathan did episode 860 called Jesus Lives. And that was the Easter podcast in 2015. And in that podcast, you went through the entire Psalm and we'll see how the first thing Jesus says and the last thing Jesus says is that psalm, and right. it refers to him throughout the whole middle. Um, so we're, we'll start with this prayer of perseverance. Okay. So when we start with that, let's go to Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34. And here you're going to make me read Aramaic. That's just great. Yes, okay. that's right. <laughs> when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, have you, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the land. We'll get back to that in a moment. And at the ninth hour, this is what he says. Read Psalm 22, verse 1. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. So the very first words of the psalm are almost the very last words of Jesus' earthly life. So that's our clue that this Psalm 22 is metaphorically speaking of Jesus. And when you read through the entire psalm, it is utterly clear that this is about his suffering and the things he went through. And there are some amazing pictures in that psalm. And and, and what was that that, that previous podcast, 860? Uh, yes, 860, Jesus Lives. Je- folks, you've got to take some time and listen to that because it really puts this psalm, it makes it come alive on the cross with Jesus because that's what the psalm was there for. And so, I didn't mean metaphorically, I meant prophetically. Yes, well, there you go. Okay. And so first, the phrase, my God, my God, literally, mighty one, mighty one. And you know, Lori, uh, Lori, uh, uh, Julie, you had mentioned um, earlier that Jesus, uh, at at one point in John seventeen, meant talked about himself as Jesus Christ. Yeah, the, the only time. The only time. Well, here, this is the only time that Jesus ever addressed God as God. He always talked about him as his Father. Oh. So he's quoting this psalm, but he's never talked about God as. God, it's always been his father. And this was the final phrase of Jesus' suffering for the sake of all of us. He too had to experience the darkness that is when God looks away. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you know, when you look at the psalm, you say, would Jesus really be asking, why have you forsaken me? This is a plead of anguish. This is an experience of pain, the pain of separation from his father. And, you know, it's reasonable to conclude that God turned his face from Jesus, perhaps, again, this is, this is another Rick opinion here, but I think he turned his face from him at the sixth hour when the darkness came, okay? And, when, um, and it stayed that way for the next three hours until he died. So let's go to Psalm 22, verse 2, to just kind of put that in perspective. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Okay. And okay, can we just set the timing here before we go? Sure. Because, before we move on, because we're talking about six hours and third hours and first hours. So the Jewish twenty-four hour day is from nightfall to nightfall, and the day begins at six a.m. to six p.m. So six a.m. is what is called the first hour. Right, 6 a.m. So our day starts at 12.01 in the morning. Right. The Jewish calendar day starts at 6.01 in the morning. Okay, so the first hour, 6 a.m. So Jesus gets put on the cross at the third hour, right, which is our 9 a.m. 9 a.m., yes. And at noon, which is the sixth hour, suddenly this thick, inky black darkness falls. Right. And it stays there for three hours until Jesus dies at 3 p.m., which is called the ninth hour in scripture. Correct. Okay, so he's on the cross for a total of six hours, and therefore explain to me how he's literally on the cross during daytime and nighttime to fulfill this Psalms 22.2. Okay, so Psalm 22.2, again, uh, did you read that? I forget. Uh, Yeah, that is Psalm 22.2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. Okay, so it says I cry by day and by night. Well, you know, you're right. He was on the cross for six hours, but it was dark for three. You know, and think about it. You had three hours of suffering on the cross in the, in the light of day. 
and three hours in the dark of night, even though it wasn't officially oh, night. He so suffered. he gets the daytime and the nighttime. Yeah, and, and in those three dark hours, you know, it's one thing to suffer when it's bright. Well, when it's dark and gloomy, the it's suffering. Scary. It is, and it's and and it's harder. And those last three hours, I really truly believe that Jesus was really, really by himself. And there was nothing, nothing that could relieve the pain and the stress and the and, and, and the and the tor- torment that he was going under. The interesting thing, Julie, is that he hangs on to life until three o'clock in the afternoon. Why does he do that? Could he, yeah. would he why does he do that? Well, he does that because the Passover lamb, way back in Exodus, it was very specific in Exodus 12 that the lamb was supposed to be slain at twilight. And twilight is 3 p.m. Oh. in the Jewish calendar. Jesus knew, I think, that he hung on with everything in him until that third hour. And when he finally got there, he could take a breath and say, it is time for me to die. It's finished right. because that parallel then comes true that he's yes. the Passover lamb. Yes. Oh. So it, it's, it's, it's a marvelous thing. But remember, he's in this attitude of prayer throughout all of this time, but it comes out of his mouth at the very, very end. So Jesus' prayer of perseverance actually becomes a prayer of peace. And we, we see the attitude of the prayer, just the, the words kind of put it in perspective. So let's go to the the last part of Jesus' earthly life here. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 36. It's going to also, we're going to combine uh, Luke 19, 28 to 30, and Luke 23, 46 in this short reading. Can we go back afterward then and talk about the darkness for a little bit? Sure. Okay. So the prayer of peace is, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, Father, and into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Okay, so there is a resignation in these words. He knew that all things were accomplished. And so he just spoke the final things that needed to be said. Now, you wanted to, you had something about... Yeah, do you remember? So this this supernatural darkness that comes over, remember, it's there for, as you said, the last three hours of his life. And, you know, when I've read this over the years, I just think, well, it must have been some solar eclipse or something like that. But I looked into it a little more and it couldn't have been. So get this, solar eclipses only happen at a new moon. And a new moon is when that moon is just a sliver. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the whole Passover celebration is always around a full moon. Right. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse, and a solar eclipse only lasts a few minutes. In fact, scientists already know that the longest solar eclipse that will occur in thousands of years will be July 16th, 2186. And they know it's going to last seven minutes and 29 seconds. (laughs) So we know it can't be a solar eclipse. And a lunar eclipse happens when the full moon is, and it can last several hours. So maybe this was a lunar eclipse. But the catch is... They only happen at night. They never happen at noon. And they basically just make the moon appear reddish. You might have heard of like a blood moon. Blood moon, right. So was it storm crowds or an aftermath of a volcanic eruption? Or There's no explanation. It was, I believe it was a supernatural happening. And the history of man has seen many dark times. But this was the darkest when the world's truly only innocent man was put to death. And it reminds me of John 9, 5, where Jesus said, 
as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So it's fitting that the light disappeared as he was dying. But just as he died, the light returned and there was hope. And, and that's the whole point, the whole point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection was hope. And hope comes when you've got that crack of light in the darkness. And so again, darkness comes up. We had darkness. It was, it was night when Satan entered into Judas. It was dark when the, the, the Pharisees took him. And it's dark when he dies. But then the light comes. So at the very end, this prayer, this prayer of peace, he is resigned. I have finally finished my work. And he says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The last verse of Psalm 22. Remember, Jesus started this by saying out loud, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. The last verse of Psalm 22, verse 31. Julie, how does that read? They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. That he has performed it. So regarding this last phrase of the psalm, that he has performed it, let's go to uh, uh, a, one of the uh, biblical commentators here. So Spurgeon said, that he hath done this or it is finished means salvation's glorious work is done. There is peace on earth and glory to the highest. It is finished. These were the expiring words of the Lord Jesus as they are the last words of this psalm. So Jesus verbally expresses the first part of the first verse of Psalm 22, verbally expresses the last phrase of Psalm 22, and then he says to his Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that actually is is, is a part of another psalm. So you have this prayer of perseverance becoming this prayer of utter peace. You know, you said about Vitol uh, Pilecki. You know, he wanted to die in a way that where there could be joy or something. The, the joy, way, instead you know. of fear at his death. And you see that with Jesus, because think about this. He says, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. What did he ask the Father to do for his disciples? Take them into his hands. What was he doing? Saying, Father, I am entirely yours. There is no greater peace than complete resignation to the hands of Almighty God. No greater peace for anyone, anywhere, anywhere. You know, um, we, you can't fulfill anything. He, Jesus couldn't fulfill anything until he breathed his last and final faithful breath. It just was so important to just put his everything into his father's hands. It's just, it's such an inspiring thing. You know, Rick, as our listeners know, you and Jonathan are both ministers and you once gave a sermon I heard called His Voice and it was about the voice of Jesus. And when you got to the part about the crucifixion, I thought it was just beautiful the way you said it. I, I, I grabbed your words out of, out of the uh, transcript. You said this, <clears throat> there was darkness in the sky and the earth quaked and the rocks rent and his voice fell silent. It was now untraceable. It no longer existed, for he had died. And for the first time since time began, all of the creation of the Almighty was without its leading voice of harmony. In his place was an empty and utter silence. In all of the vast expanses of the universe, there had never been a time or place 
where such an empty silence could be found. This too was necessary, but only for a time, for the Almighty was not yet finished. And I thought that really captured that. It is finished, and then silence. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a profound moment that was, and what a victory that was, that he had completed every tiny little prophecy about him. And you've, you've done podcasts before. There were over 600 individual prophecies about Jesus yes. and, and what he would do. Every single one was fulfilled in God's name and with God's will. That's unbelievable reason to be joyous this this time of year. It is. And, you know, when we look at these three prayers, we put it all in perspective. You see Jesus in this mode of everything is for the glory of God. And it's God's word. It's God's will. It's God's way. And I am merely here to accomplish what he has sent me to do. So let's wrap up this prayer of perseverance. So the prayer of perseverance and peace is let us always remember Jesus's prayer example on the cross. His prayer for strength to absorb the full measure of humanity's sin led him to the conclusion of Psalm 22, the proclamation of peace at the end of the tumultuous road of sacrifice. The proclamation of peace at the end of sacrifice. Let's go back very quickly to uh, the our, skit, our friends, the skit guys, uh, James... Uh, um, James the Lesser, and uh, what he finds out is less actually is more. We thought it was over. We thought all of this was done. But instead, he put death in its place. He did it. He did it. And when I look at myself, I see the disappointment. I see the dismissal. I see the lesser. And I realize I'm pretty forgettable. But then I remember, he did it. He conquered death. He did it for me because of the cross, Because of Christ, I am redeemed, reborn even. He has set me free from my sin. He has set me free from myself. And I do not mind having less of me if it means I can have so much more of him. That's a profound lesson from James the Lesser. Less of me can mean more of him. Bring it on. And uh, however insignificant we may feel, we are important in God's eyes if we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And let's make sure that we walk clearly in those steps. So, Julie, we don't want to end on the crucifixion, because as powerful as that is, that is not the ending. It is the, the, the early stages of the beginning. The end result of all of Jesus' prayers of, and faithfulness was a new beginning for every man, woman, and child. So let's just drop in on the women at the tomb. We're going to be reading from a combination of Mark 16 and Luke 24. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, They saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. 
and entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. And he saith unto them, Be not afraid. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So we begin to wrap this up by looking at the resurrection. And the resurrection happens for one reason, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity to the will and way of God. That's what Jesus' prayers brought him to. His connection with the Father carried him there. He made the choices necessary. And because he lives, we also can live. So, Julie, as we wrap this up, anything, any final words from you before we close? Well, it's amazing to see what he prayed for and what he didn't pray for. Deliverance was available, and it could have been used but it shouldn't have been used. And we are thankful that he didn't. Julie, thanks so much for being with us. This has been a powerful, powerful few minutes to talk about, to observe the great, profound focus that Jesus had to put these prayers in order so that he could keep himself and show those who followed him how much they had to look forward to if they would just stay by his side. You know, we all fall. We're all insignificant. We all come up short. Jesus lived with that. And you know what? It was okay because his faithfulness gave us grace so that when we fall, by his faithfulness, we can get up again and stand for what's right and true. For Julie and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We uh, want to just focus on the power of the prayers of Jesus. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. And don't forget, coming up next week, we'll be talking about Should Christians criticize anyone? Talk to you next week.